0: 1 through 15 is the lectionary reading uh, for today. Uh, Let me give you another quick little recap of what the lectionary is, just so that we're all clear about it. The lectionary uh, is a book, and it's divided into three years, year A, B, and C. And every Sunday, different scriptures are laid out for churches to look at according to the church calendar. Right so once we get to after Thanksgiving there'll be adventy things right and we'll go through advent then we'll celebrate the birth of Jesus together and all the scriptures sort of run around these themes and then after that there's epiphany there's lent and then there's holy week and monday thursday and so it's according to the church calendar and churches all over the world across all kinds of denominations uh, and traditions uh, look at the same passages on, on every Sunday. And so uh, I thought that as we make our way in this world that seems to be more, more divided and fractured than ever, I thought it would be good for us to open our arms uh, and recognize that we have a lot more in common than we do the things that divide us And so I feel like this is sort of an act of solidarity with people who are different than we are, who maybe think a little bit differently than we are theologically, and that let's just embrace that. And let's recognize that we're a part of a greater body than just our little bubble. Uh, Because I think that's really, really important. Um, So we're gonna lean into the lectionary, uh, and it's sort of a more traditional thing to do, I don't care, it feels good. So we're gonna do that for the foreseeable future. There may be a couple weeks here and there where I jump out of it because the word of the Lord has come to me and I wanna do something different and that's okay. Um, But for the foreseeable future, we're just gonna sort of lean into this practice because we know that every Sunday, millions of people, millions of people, perhaps billions of people around the world on this day, are thinking about this passage of God's word. Does that sound like a good thing to you? Awesome. If it doesn't, too bad. So, <laughs> hope you stick around anyway. <laughs> Don't need to push you away. Um, Jeremiah 32, 1 through 15, before we read it, let's pray together. God, this is, this is your word to us this book this is the way in which you one of the ways in which you you speak to us and reveal your very heart to us we know that your word is generative it's creative and so it can make new things it can start Things in us. It can change us and it can transform us. But you're not going to force it on us because that's not what you do. You are not a violent God. You invite us. And the only way that we can receive your word is if we're open to it, if perhaps you open us up to it. So that's what we pray for this morning. Spirit, open us. Help us to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Jeremiah 32, starting at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon, was then besieging Jerusalem. That doesn't sound like a good thing. Like, it's not a word we use all the time, besieging. Um, Jerusalem was going down, is what that means. And Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. So he was imprisoned for, for with his own people, while the Babylonian army was on the outside of the walls of Jerusalem, attacking them. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, he didn't like what he was saying. (laughs) Why do you prophesy to me as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to hand this city over to the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape out of the hands of the Babylonians, but will certainly be handed over to the king of Babylon and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. Here's a prophet of God telling the people in power if you continue to do what you do, you're going down. And if you fight the king of Babylon, You're going to go down. So the king's like, I don't like what you're saying. Jail. Jeremiah said, then the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamal, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, buy my field in Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Wait, What? Then just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me and in the courtyard of the guard said to me, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth for my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as an unsealed copy. Then I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and the witnesses who had signed the deed, and all of the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. Whew. Exciting stuff. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both sealed and unsealed, copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought on this land. We will go that far. What a weird story. What a strange, strange story. So the Babylonian army was just hammering away at the city of Jerusalem, just besieging it, hammering away. The situation was completely hopeless. Even God had told the king Zedekiah through the prophet Jeremiah, you fight this, you're going down it's all over for you, hopeless. The Israelites were about to be defeated. Their capital city was about to be totally ransacked and those who survived the military onslaught from the Babylonians were then gonna be captured, kidnapped, forced to walk hundreds of miles through the desert in order to live in a foreign land. Situation dire, code red. Are you with me? And yet, here we have Jeremiah. In the middle of all of that, in jail, no less, imprisoned, absurdly making a real estate deal. What? He's buying a piece of property, a vacant lot, really, just outside in the suburbs of Jerusalem. The land is not gonna be Israel's anymore. What are you doing? Like, this is really poor timing, terrible timing. This seems like a risky deal to me, doesn't it, to you? Super risky. We'll come back to that. Have you ever heard of the phrase helicopter parenting? You've heard of this? Yeah. I have to admit, this is a really tempting thing to lean into as a parent. And it's like, I got to catch myself a lot but you get the idea. There's, there's this image that comes along with it. A helicopter parent is a parent who hovers over his or her children, making sure that they never make a mistake, making sure that they always do things right, making sure that they don't hurt themselves, making sure uh, that they don't fail. And this isn't something that parents just do of toddlers, of little children, because at that age, you kind of have to hover a little bit because they're not as smart as they will be. But sometimes that that practice of hovering over your parents, then over your children sort of um, extends into uh, later early adulthood, into high school and into college. And then you got parents who are bribing universities to get their kids into into universities, and then they get caught, and then they have to go to jail and pay a hefty fine, and it's, it's classic helicopter parenting right there, right? So parents, we can actually over-parent our children. We can actually do too much, right? And we're now learning that helicopter parenting can have serious consequences for our, for our children. Listen to this. Kids experience things like decreased confidence and self-esteem, undeveloped coping skills, increased anxiety, a sense of entitlement. They deserve it. My parents always been given to me. Undeveloped life skills. So psychologists are now saying, and actually if we've been paying attention at all, they've been saying for a really long time now that it's probably a really good idea to give our kids some space to let them sort of spread their wings, to encourage them to take risks, to actually encourage them to be in a position where they actually might fail. Things might not work out for them. So the goal of parenting is what? To help our kids grow up and to eventually become well-adjusted adults who make adult decisions and adult choices. Right? This is how they learn real life skills if we make the, if we allow them to to fail. Look, Here's the deal. A little shock from putting your finger in an outlet or touching a stove and burning your hand or skinning your knees up really bad from being a little bit reckless on your bicycle. Those aren't good things, but they're not necessarily bad things either. They're not necessary, but they can be helpful. They, there are lessons that are learned. When I was four, five, or six, played with fire. Do you remember? Probably all three. <laughs> Ignore him. <laughs> Me and a friend, we uh, were playing with matches, and uh, we were in the backyard. I have vivid memories of this. And we were lighting matches and throwing them over the fence and watching the lit matches go, Wee (laughs) It's really cool. Uh, So we got bored of that after a little while. And it was the old school book matches, you know, the ones. And then we went into his garage and we found some cardboard boxes and we were like, ooh, those will burn. So we... So we lit the boxes on fire, and then we lit another place, and pretty soon it got a little bit too big for us, so we were like, oh no, that's too much. So we went out front and got the hose to turn on the water to to put it out, right? Smart thinking, and then the hose didn't reach. So then we took mouthfuls of water, and we would run in, and we would spit it on the fire, and then we would go back and get another mouthful, and then we'd spit it on the fire, and it didn't work, and the garage burned down, and I got in trouble. Anybody guess how many times I played with fire after that? Here's the deal. (laughs) None, by the way, in case you were wondering. Fire. Um, So then, uh, so it's important for us to encourage our kids to not burn down the garage or the house, but to to put them in positions to to take a risk, to uh, to put them in position where they might actually fail. Right? Here's why I bring all of this up. I don't think God is a helicopter parent. I don't think that. I don't think God is watching over us, hovering over us, making sure that we don't ever make mistakes, because how many of us have made mistakes? Sure. Thank you for being honest. Um, So the Spirit of God, yes, we believe, is hovering over us, correct? Correct. We believe that God might even be like this picture of a dove on our shoulder, this presence that's available to us all the time, in all places, whenever, wherever we are, whenever we are there. But God's not intervening in our lives and making sure that we don't make things up. No, God actually gives us space, allows us to spread our wings and sort of try to figure things out if you will, that God lets us, maybe even encourages us to, to take some chances once in a while, to, to take some risks, to take what we've called in circles of faith, leaps of faith. Are you with me? Let's go to Jeremiah. Let's think about him in this story. He's not taking a little risk, risking a little loss. He's taking a ginormous risk, risking a huge Loss when he buys that field. So what's going on here? The word of the Lord comes to him through his cousin Hanamel. It says this, buy the field at Anathoth because the nearest, you're the nearest relative. It's your right and duty to buy it. Again, remember, the Israelites are under attack. They're about to be defeated. The city was going to be ransacked. The people who survived the military onslaught were about to be taken in captivity. They were gonna to have to walk hundreds of miles and live in a foreign land. And yet here we have Jeremiah making a real estate deal. It's absurd. It's crazy. He's buying a piece of property just outside in the the suburbs of Jerusalem. Israel's not going to own the land. What are you doing? So Jeremiah makes this absurd investment. Why? Why does he do this? Because he believes in the promises of God. Because he believes that God is faithful. Because he believes that God will make things right. He believes that everything will be okay. He believes that God is with them. He believes that houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought on this land. God will come through. And sure enough, after the exile, the people of Anathoth come back. And houses and fields and vineyards are then bought on that land. You can find that in Ezra chapter 2 if you don't believe me. Ezra chapter 2. Fact check me if you want. It's there. Now, if we're going to show Jeremiah like faith, what kinds of risks do we need to take around here? If we're going to show Jeremiah like faith, what kind of risks do we need to take around here? Because I think now, is the time for risk-taking. I really do. Perhaps more than in a long time now is the time for risk-taking. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how the world around us is changing really quickly. It's not a matter of if things change, it's a matter of when things change, and when things change is overnight. Like it's happening so fast that we Jesus people have a really hard time figuring out what to do. The church, worldwide really, is having a a really hard time figuring out how do we respond to all that's going on In the world. And I'm not the first one to point this out. In fact, there are lots of people writing whole books about this. And actually, that's been happening for about 15, 20 years now. People have been writing leadership books about how in the world do we navigate a world that we don't understand anymore. One of those authors is a guy by the name of Todd Bolsinger. My dad gave me this book, so if you don't like this, you can blame him. Again, it's his fault, always his fault, you helicopter parent. Anyway. He's written a book called Canoeing the Mountains. Canoeing the Mountains. In it, and I've only read the first four chapters, so I can't give you all of what he says, but in it, he uses the Lewis and Clark expedition to find a Northwest Passage across this, uh, this great land of ours, Right? After 15 months of a long, hard slog across the country, they come to the mouth of the Missouri River, and they're drinking from that, and they're like the first explorers to make it that far, and the only thing they have to do next is to crest the hill, the next hill, And what they thought they would find on the other side of that hill was a nice, gentle slope down to the Pacific coast. They even had this idea that there was a river that they were going to take, that was going to take them right down to the Pacific coast. They had brought canoes for the trip. They crested the hill, got to the top, and did not see a nice, sloping hill to the Pacific coast. What did they see? The what? The what? The Rocky Mountains, as far as the eye could see, it was flipping terrifying. They were disappointed. They had no idea what to do. They were completely, entirely unprepared for what was next. Time to pack up our canoes and go back, failure. They could do that. Do you know your history? Did they do that? They risked it all. Canoes on their backs, they went, and eventually they found the way. So Todd Bolsinger says that we find ourselves in a similar situation. Like we're completely, entirely unprepared. We are unsure of how to navigate the world today as followers of Jesus. We have what seems like the Rocky Mountains right in front of us. And we're like, oh, what do we do? Now we could turn around and we could say, let's go back to the way things were. And we don't have to deal with this, you know, or we can risk it and we can move ahead, trusting that God is with us and that God will actually be faithful, but we can actually take some risks. So the question is, what kinds of risks do we need to take? Jeremiah's there. The Babylonian army's about to defeat them. The mountain's right in front of him, and he does something that he, that's completely absurd. Everyone thinks that's absurd. So what's, what kinds of risks do we need to take? So I've got some ideas, and maybe you can think of some more over lunch with the people you have lunch with, but we live in a world right now that doesn't trust us. Let's just acknowledge this reality. Let's be real about it. The world doesn't trust us. The world looks at us and sees a bunch of hypocrites. Let's say it like it is. They look at us and they say, you people do not live into the love that you proclaim and it sickens us. We want nothing to do with you. You speak. We can't hear you. How do we respond? How do we respond to that? I think one of the risks we take is we lean into this thing we call social justice, actually loving and serving the world. This is a risky thing. Even using that phrase, social justice, gets some of our defenses up, and we're like, where's he going with this? Right? But the idea of justice in the Bible is different than we normally think. Like, we think of of justice as somebody's done something wrong and now they need to get what they deserve. That's not the biblical concept of justice. The biblical concept of justice is everybody having what they need in order to flourish in the world. Everybody, that means if systems and uh, ways of being are unfair... We need to work to make them fair so that the people who don't have what they need in this world to flourish, get what they need in this world to flourish. It's connected to this idea of shalom in the Old Testament, where everything is working as God created it to be. People, creation, all of those things are being carefully stewarded so that everything and everyone has what it needs to flourish. Are you with me? Jesus, when he started his ministry in and around Galilee, said this about himself. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to set the captives free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's Favor, He said, that's what my life is about. That's why I'm here. At the end of Matthew's Jesus story, he went up to the the religious elite and he said to them, he denounced them because they had ignored justice and mercy. And you can find this idea all over the pages of the Old Testament. Read the prophets. Spend a couple of weeks reading through Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, Micah, and the rest. Spend some time with them. This is literally the way that Isaiah begins. Said, the Lord says this, seek justice. Not the justice we think of, the justice I just told you about. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. The word of the Lord on this is clear as a bell. Absolutely clear. So it's our duty, our calling to work for justice in the world, to support policies and procedures and ways of being that look after the orphan, the outsider, to make sure that people have what they need to flourish. It's a biblical mandate. It's a calling from the one who made us. Now, we've taken some steps. We've done some risks like this. when When we had those two rummage sales, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but we were taking a risk there this summer. What if y'all didn't bring enough stuff for us to sell? Like we were just trusting that you were going to do that. What if we didn't get enough volunteers to help with the thing? By the way, I want to give a special shout-out again to Lynette. She's not asking for it, but she's the one who sort of put the whole thing together and all kinds of volunteers afterwards. Thank you. We were risking that y'all would bring stuff right? We had it out there. It was in Ames people on Facebook, which everybody in Ames sees Ames people in Facebook. What if nobody showed up? What if we hardly raised any money? And we told people the money we're going to get, we're just going to give to Micah, no strings attached. That in and of itself was a risk. We took that risk, wound up writing a couple of checks that totaled $1,200, and we just gave it to Micah. That was a risk. We risked that they would take that money and use it for what was best for them. They could have thrown a party for all we know, but we risked it. We said, here you go. You do what you want with this, even if it's just to keep the lights on for a little while here you go. It was a risk. We took a risk, Labor Day weekend, when we gathered together here in this place and we said, we're going to do Sunday morning differently. We're going to sing a few songs, then we're going to go to Walmart, buy a whole bunch of groceries. We know how important this place and this time and this sacred space is to you. When we gather together in worship, and we sing, and we hear a word from the Lord, and we said, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it differently. We're going to serve and show our love for the world. And we trusted that you would be okay with that, and that you would show up, and you did. And then we gave those groceries to Micah, which is a risk. We trusted that they were going to get those that stuff to the people who really, really needed it in a way that was most efficient. We just trusted. That is a risk. Anytime we trust and partner with another local organization, we're taking a risk that things are going to work out all right. Every time we trust and partner with another local organization, we're saying to the world, yeah, we really do love the city of Ames. We really aren't here for ourselves. We're going to risk our reputation, and we're going to love the city of Ames. Listen. Living in a world that doesn't trust us, living in a world that says we don't live into the love that we proclaim, maybe it's time for us to live into the love that we proclaim. Maybe it's time for us to up our serving game in the world and give of ourselves out there even more than we already do. It's the purpose for which we are here and we've been created. What do you think? Can we risk more of that? Here's another thing. I think we need to risk (laughs) getting outside of our own little bubbles. Like there's so many divisions. And I just talked about this a little bit ago, but there's so many. How many denominations do we have? Anybody know? I didn't check. It's like tens of thousands. It's insane. The world looks at that and they're like, you can't even love each other. We can't trust you. How about we break that mold? How about we start reaching out and linking arms with other churches in town who think a little bit differently from us theologically and be okay with that? How about we actually start listening to other theological viewpoints? And some of us, sometimes we think this is a dangerous thing. Oh no, we don't want to get it wrong, but this isn't a dangerous thing. The things that we have in common are way larger than the things that we disagree about. And when we listen to people who think differently than us, what does that do for us? It forces us. To think really long and hard about what we actually do believe about God and life and the way we ought to be in a world. And iron sharpens iron, and that's never a bad thing. So let's open our arms a little bit wider now and not be so standoffish and you don't believe what we believe, but let's get in on this together. Let's just be in dialogue because our Christian faith is much more global than it ever has been before and we have access to more information and more thought than we ever have before, why don't we lean into that? It can't be a bad thing, it's only a good thing because now in humility, we get to dialogue with other people and there's all sorts of energy and beauty around that. Here's the next thing. I think we all need to make a greater commitment to this community, to renew community. I think we need to risk some things. I think we need to risk a couple of Sundays a year and we know how sacred this time is to serve in the nursery so that when guests come and they have little ones, they got a place to go. And even if there isn't, we take care of our own little ones. I think we need to risk taking a chance and serving on a serving team. I think we need to take a risk and enter into a small group, what we call pods around here. And sure, you might serve alongside of somebody you don't really like, and that's okay, or somebody you disagree with. You might be in a, a small group with some people who think very differently than you, theologically, socially, politically, but that's okay. Again, We're Jesus people. We're defined by love. We can be in dialogue with one another and have differences. And again, on a smaller scale, it's what I talked about just a second ago. We can refine what we believe and really come to a place where we can be confident in what we believe about God and life and our world and our place in it because we dialogue and challenge is a good thing and iron sharpens iron and hallelujah, let's celebrate that kind of stuff, I think. We need to, to make a greater commitment to this community. It is well worth the risk. I think we all need to risk greater, greater commitments, including a financial investment. Listen to what, listen to how Jeremiah notice what he does. He puts his money where his mouth is. He's like, I believe in the faithfulness of God so much, I'm gonna be dumb enough to buy a piece of land. When it's just going to be taken away from me, and years down the road, maybe quite possibly I'll get it back because it's buried in these clay jars, and I'll have proof. Right? He says, "I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales, and then I gave it to Baruch, and we put it in this jars, and and it was like this. It's so exciting. It's like it's as exciting as when you sign a mortgage deal, and you're like Aaron Viss, Aaron Viss, Aaron Viss, Aaron Viss." <laughs> But here's the truth. Making a financial investment in this community is just as risky as social justice. It's just as, as risky as being in a pod together because when you give and when we put our money into the mission and ministry of this church, we don't know how things are gonna church turn out. We have faith that they're gonna turn out well and that we're actually gonna be able to do some pretty amazing things within the city of Ames, but we don't have Complete assurance, it's a risk. But we show the same kind of faith that Jeremiah showed when he bought that field. He bought that field based on the promises of God, that God was going to make sure that everything was going to be all right. God is God and we are not, that things were going to be okay, more than okay, that this place would again flourish, that people once again would buy houses and fields and vineyards on this land. Look, God's not a helicopter parent. God's not hovering over us, making sure that we don't make a mistake, making sure that we always get things right. No, he's with us all the time, ready to respond if we ask, but God is also there, like a dove on our shoulder, tweeting in our, or cooing, whatever doves do, in our ears, take a risk. Take a chance. Take a step of faith. You might actually learn a thing or two. Things might actually become clearer for you. And it's my experience that we, when we make a risk for the divine, we don't get depleted, that we don't get discouraged, that we actually wind up energized, and we actually wind up growing closer to one another. We do because we're all doing this together and none of us is perfect. And when we take a risk for the divine together, even if we don't agree, we actually grow closer to God. It's well worth the risk. Don't you think? Because I believe that God, no matter what, even if we fail, even if we make a mess of things, God will be faithful. And in the end, it'll be all right. Things will flourish. Let's pray. God, thanks.